Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to my Grand Slam Journey podcast, where I, together with my guests, discuss various topics related to finding purpose, maximizing our potential, competitive sports, life after sports, and transitioning from one chapter of our lives to the next. If you want to learn about my podcast, please browse my website and blog at grandslamjourney.com, which is a collection of my passion projects. Today's episode is with Jesse Burdick. For those who are part of the sports industry, Jesse needs little to no introduction. As you are listening to this podcast, I want to encourage you to check Jesse's website, powerwatt.com, and his social media. I added all of these links to this episode's show notes to make things easy on you. Jesse is a former NCAA Division I baseball player who played semi-professional after college and then transitioned into powerlifting. Jesse has squatted 909 pounds, bench pressed 601 pounds, and deadlifted 820 pounds in competition and holds an elite status in five consecutive weight classes, a feat accomplished by very few lifters. He trained with and was mentored by some of the greatest athletes in the sports history. With Jesse's commitment, focus, hard work, and curiosity, he inevitably became one of those highly sought after and respected coaches himself. Jesse has been coaching some of the top athletes from the NFL, MLB, NCAA, Navy SEALs, UFC, Lion Fight Bellator, and the CrossFit Games. Jesse's husband to CrossFit Games competitor Katie Hagen and a father of three girls. He calls them the Burdick Chicks. Going back to how I met Jesse, I started my own CrossFit journey when I moved to the East Bay area 10 years ago. Jesse's gym was part of the CrossFit place, and it was so impressive seeing him and his team lift. I have to admit, it looked a bit intimidating to me seeing someone lifting so much weight. I hear people often talk about how impressive it is to see bodybuilders in person versus on TV. I feel the same, if not more, is true for powerlifters. It is hard to explain or describe it. It is something that is best to be seen. At the time, Jesse also had these precious two little girl twins running around the gym, Cassie and Sophia. They must have been about five years old at the time. It was so fun to see this combination of dad and his team lifting super heavy stuff. And these two little super cute and highly energetic little girls running around the gym and starting to lift their little baby barbells and doing squat cleans probably much better than I was able to do at that point of time. I hope I painted a good enough picture for you. I found it very fun and fascinating at the same time. Something that will not be deleted from my memory. It was so great to reconnect with Jesse and hear his wisdom and all the great tips he has shared with me. I hope you will enjoy the listen as much as I did. Jesse and I talked about how he started with baseball, his transition to powerlifting, and he has shared a wealth of information about the athletic mindset, nutrition, and building strength. We discussed the benefits of using sports to build your own network of people and support systems, importance of asking questions and being curious, what does it mean to be an athlete, 
generosity, helping others, and paying things forward. Baseball and the importance of strength for baseball players, but also other athletes and us, the general population. Jesse gave us some great simple tips on how to build strength and power so you can start your own routine if you get inspired by listening to this conversation. Fun fact, I certainly got inspired and have started my 5x5 10-week building strength program a couple weeks ago. Jesse gives example of the importance of goal setting, cooking and nutrition, the art of starting with the small simple things, low-hanging fruit, as Jesse calls it, that you can do every day that will help you build good habits and achieve your goals. A few main things I love about this conversation are Jesse's way of simplifying things and breaking them down into simple, easy steps that anyone can do and follow. He has a very practical approach to life, a positive outlook, and authentic warm-heartedness. Jesse truly radiates this out, And I hope you can hear it by listening to this episode the same way I did when I was part of this conversation. There are many great quotes from this episode, and I realize I have been talking about Jesse and this conversation for a while now, so I will only read one for you. Please review the show notes to read them all. Being an athlete means you have a built-in identity. Everybody should be at least a little bit of an athlete as long as their abilities will allow them to. And now, enjoy the listen. I remember when I saw you first and actually your two little girls hanging out in the CSA when I started CrossFit. Yes. Just by default, such a respect all you were doing there with strength and the team that you had there. So just even the body posture resonates respect and authority. And I wanted to start with, just that and you being an elite powerlifter and equipped and raw lifting. You were also a coach running gym and directing different meets. And above all, you're a father and have amazing household of women and strong women. So I would love to dive <laughs> yes. into that in general. But where did you grow up, Jesse? How was your upbringing and what brought you into sports in general? I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. And ever since I can remember and Honestly, you know, you can ask my parents, they'll say the same thing. I was, uh, I was wearing a hat and I had a baseball bat in my hand from the time I was two years old. So all I've ever known is baseball. So I don't know how that happened, but, you know, I was very lucky to, you know, live right across the street from two parks and a school. And it was just a cool neighborhood. There's a lot of kids around. I can probably name off 10 kids that I played with almost every day. I remember leaving the house on my bike around nine and coming back when the streetlights came on. And that was every day that I wasn't in school. Um, And every day that I was in school, I would come back home. And this is anyone who knows baseball, this will date me. But the Chicago Cubs, Wrigley Field didn't have lights at the time that I was in grade school. So they had all afternoon games and uh, we had WGN. So I would come home from school and watch the Cubs and then watch the Braves on TBS. And that was pretty much a normal day for me, both in and out of school. And that's all I've ever done. And that's all I kind of really remember. Sports was play and we played hockey in the winters. We played football. We played a number of any and every baseball game, tennis ball, wiffle ball, whatever that we could play. 
That was just my upbringing, and that's how I got into sport. I was lucky enough to have really supportive, awesome parents, and they let me do what I really like to do. And I really like to play baseball, and that kind of got me into things, and things worked out pretty well. And I was able to find my way to a good high school in the area, and from there, was able to excel and get a Division One scholarship. And then the rest is kind of history from there. You know, I got to play in college. I got to play a little semi-professional baseball. And that, along with chasing a girl across the United States, got me to California. But that's kind of how it started. Sport was just play. Play was every sport outside, everything that I could do. So um, that's mm -hmm. all I ever knew. That's all. <laughs> yeah. That's all I ever knew. And it's interesting how you say it, because as I talk to more and more people who were or are athletes, We don't typically know how our passion started. It seems something grabbed us. That's what it seems for you as well. You knew early on that baseball or something seems like you were interested in. You were so focused and engraved in the sport. Seems like you watched it, played it, and then it seemed like it just naturally progressed for you dedicating more and more time to it and becoming better over time. Is that accurate? Oh, 100%. And I think now being a parent and looking back, I don't know if it was ignorance or if, if it wasn't kind of part of the lexicon of American parenting. Mm -hmm. You know, there wasn't any pressure from my mom and dad. This was something that I wanted to do. And I bugged them. I begged them. I pleaded with them. I tried to do anything and everything I could. Like I was talking to my wife and one of my daughters, Casey, mm -hmm. she will just go out and play by herself and she'll play through a game of either volleyball or softball. I was just like, this is what I did. Mm -hmm. I would just go up to the middle school and I would throw a tennis ball against the wall and I would just do that for hours. And that's just all I would do when I wouldn't find anyone to play with or no one would want to play, you know, whatever I was doing. Um, that's just kind of what I wanted to do. And now kind of being on the other side, looking at some kids where parents are forcing them mm -hmm. into certain lessons and forcing them to do whatever. It was 100% all my choice all the time. There was only one time in my whole career that I can remember being forced to do something. And that was, I was playing on four teams at once in high school. And one of them was a recreational team that my dad and my grandpa ran the rec league. So they told me like, hey, you have to be on this team because it looks good. And there was one time where I just didn't want to do it because it really wasn't fun for me because the level of competition wasn't where it needed to be and it didn't interest me. But that only lasted a very small amount of time. And I can only remember saying, I'm tired. I don't want to go to this game. I can only remember ever doing that once. But everything else was 100% my choice. And I have zero regrets about it. And to be honest with you, I wish I would have worked harder and done more. <laughs> Yeah, and I love your example, just how you went out and played uh, even with a tennis ball against the wall, because that's what I used to do when I was growing up. The wall was one of my best friends. <laughs> no one was there. The wall was always there. It always hits the ball back. Yes. So you can spend hours and hours doing activities like that and improving your game. Yeah. And I also love you mentioning giving a space. And I've spoken actually with one of my friends on a previous podcast, how much it is. You're living it as a parent really more of supporting your kids and giving them a choice or helping them find their passion and what they enjoy doing instead of pushing them towards a specific direction. Yeah, you know, I think you can relate to this as well. Mm -hmm. All I know up to this day is I was taught 
playing sports mm-hmm. in the locker room, everything. I was taught how to set goals. I was taught how to work hard. I was taught how to win. I was taught how to lose mm-hmm. adversity. I was taught how to work. A team. I was taught how to be a leader. I was taught how to talk to authorities being the umpires and coaches. Mm-hmm. I was taught how to bring along some of the younger kids. I was taught some of the business of baseball and politics of everything that you have that does happen yeah. and all the drama that happens on teams as you kind of get older. So to me, my girls, they can do whatever they want, but I really wanted them to experience sports for a number of different reasons. And they just started high school. And one of the biggest reasons was we landed in Pleasanton and this is where we want to be. This is a wonderful community. We have great schools and there's great people around us. We embedded ourselves in this community. We start to put the kids in stuff. They make friends. They do this stuff. So now the transition from preschool to grade school, grade school to middle school, middle school to high school is so much easier because you have connections throughout all sorts of different camps and mm. sports and all sorts of other things. So while you might have one or two friends from a middle school and then going to a big high school, that makes it difficult. Very luckily, my girls walked in and being on the volleyball team and already having a brand new 16 friends and along with the friends that they already had and along with the friends that they had already met from softball and other volleyball. So, I mean, they walk in with a really big network. Mm -hmm. And I think that's extremely important for kids socially, just to be able to be comfortable and be able to be themselves. Mm -hmm. So as far as what they do from here, it's completely up to them. You're absolutely right. And I'll support anything that they do or don't want to do. But I really think it's important for kids to do, you just learn so much about being an adult. And there's so many things. And, you know, in the long run, and I know you can relate to this probably a little bit more, unfortunately, um, and me too, you have a short window, you know what I mean? You have high school and you got college. That's eight years. If you're lucky, maybe you have a couple years after that. Right. right. And maybe you have a couple years because you're playing tennis, maybe earlier before kind of high school. But you're looking at, at maximum. Most people are going to have a four year window in high school. If you're very good, you're very lucky. You have a six or an eight year. window. And I just encourage them I'm like, hey, don't have a regret that you wish you could have done anything more. You have eight years. Just head down, get good grades, play sports, do your thing, set yourself up for college. And then life will start to open up after that. Don't worry about all the drama. (laughs) Don't worry about all the other stuff. And just focus in and go from there. Now, I completely realize I have girls. And we're going to run into all sorts of drama regardless. But it's one of those things where I just keep trying to, you know, like, hey, man, everybody always talks about this is like some of the best years of their lives. Don't think you're missing out on anything by focusing on your sport. And on your grades, because no matter what, and there's a celebrity softball game we were watching. And I was just like, look at all these celebrities. These are people who have millions of followers, millions of dollars. They're recording artists, whatever they are. But all they want to do is be an athlete. Even for one day, they want to be an athlete. And I was just like, girls, look, all these people, that's all they want to do. You have the chance to be an athlete for as much and as long as you want. I don't know how long it is but maximize it for as much as you can because being an athlete is fucking cool. <laughs> I so love that. And actually just to share, even now, and it's funny, I'm in my late thirties when people ask me at work and it's a very corporate professional setting, one word that I would describe myself with, 
that one first word that comes into my mind is athlete. Yes. Because I think it represents so many great qualities and values. I cannot find a more descriptive word that I would choose for myself other than athlete. I agree with you. And I'm incredibly proud to call myself an athlete and incredibly proud to call my wife and my daughters athletes as well, because I agree with you. It's such a defining term. It could be tennis. It could be softball, volleyball, baseball. It could be wrestling. It could be table tennis. It doesn't matter. Being an athlete represents hard work, overcoming adversity, and just working hard more than anything. And um, it's an incredible descriptor. And I'm so proud to be able to call myself that. And I can hear from the tone of your voice that that's an incredibly important thing for you too. And it should be because it's an incredible definer. And if we really think of it, we take a step back from things and, you know, you're in corporate America, you know, you're dealing with people, mm-hmm. you have to deal with people and you have to deal with teams and you have to do all of these things. Who's going to be better at dealing with a team, dealing with being told how to do something coached one way or the other, or critiqued one way or the other? Is it going to be the kid who played video games all day and stayed in his basement? Or is it going to be the person who is an athlete? The athlete understands how to be coached how to take criticism, and how to overcome things. And those are, you can ask anyone in leadership positions, they want athletes because of those great traits that come along with being an athlete. Yeah. And also, I think something about athlete is, and this is I'm getting even more as I age now than maybe when I lived it, but it's the real experience you get. And whatever sport you choose, People choose it for a reason because they care about it. They cling in it. It clicks with them or the personality and the skills that they have, right? And for that reason, it really becomes very important. Like I could compare my tennis matches almost to a year of my life or sometimes you can pack a whole life in a one tennis match because you have ups and downs and you go. And so the feelings that you get from the winning and losing and how you deal with it are really lessons that one can learn and take on. And the experience you get through how you manage yourself through that athletic event, I think it's something that is really hard to replicate. I may be biased because I'm an athlete, <laughs> maybe there's other ways to do that, but it is certainly something that I'm having given a hard time sometimes describing in words. Yeah, it's something that you can't just learn it without experiencing it. You can't understand what it's like to be an athlete if you were never an athlete. Mm-hmm. And you're 100% right. There's no other way to do it except to do it. And you don't necessarily have to do it for long. You don't necessarily have to be incredibly successful. But once you do it, you understand at least a little bit of it. And then the further on you go, you the more you understand like, oh, if I want to be that good, I have to do what that girl's doing. And that girl practices two hours a day more than I do. And then you ask yourself, Is it worth it for me to practice two hours a day to get onto her level? Or am I okay at my level? Or do I go all in and say, well, if she's doing two hours a day, I'm doing three hours a day. So I get to deal with a lot of kids who are in going from middle school to high school, high school to college, and then very lucky to be able to deal with kids who are going college into professional athletes. And I always tell a story about a Kobe Bryant story. And the story is, Dwayne Wade's story. And he was in Los Angeles and they had a practice and they were um, the heat when that's where Dwayne Wade was playing. We're finished with practice and Kobe Bryant came in 
And he was just like, Hey, is it cool? I'm just going to stay down here and I'm just going to shoot. And Dwayne Wade was like, yeah, dude, cool. I'm going to be down here. I'm just going to stay and shoot. He's like, okay, great. So Dwayne Wade was just like, well, I'll just stay here. And, you know, he just seems like he's maybe driving home from somewhere. He's going to take maybe bucket or two or whatever. So he sits there and he starts shooting, starts shooting, starts shooting. Half hour goes by, hour goes by, hour and a half goes by, two hours goes by. Then Dwayne Wayne looks at his phone and he's just like, shit, I have a dinner. I have a this, I have a that. I really need to go. But I want to see how long Kobe's going to go. So he starts to change his plans, stays there for three and a half hours. Now it's four hours. And at the point, his wife is like, you need to come. You got to go. We have to leave. So he was just like, hey, Kobe, I'm out of here. Thanks. Great to see you. And he's like, okay, cool. Leaves, takes off. As he gets back to his hotel, Dwayne Wade shoots Kobe a message because all these guys are friends. He's like, hey, man, I tried to stay there as long as you did. I was exhausted, but I wanted to know how long do you do that for? And he goes, well, I didn't really have a set time, but when I saw that you were there, I was never going to leave before you did. I would have stayed there for 24 hours. (laughs) So there are people, and I'm sure you can attest to this, especially being in the tennis realm who are willing to stay there until the lights fucking go out. And if those are the people who are willing to miss their kid's birthday party, miss a flight, miss anything along those lines, just to prove that they worked harder than you did. And if you're not willing to at least approach that level of commitment, then you better be okay with understanding that maybe you're going to be average. You don't necessarily have to be the superstar, one of the greatest of all times, but you have to understand how far those people are willing to go. And it's not an accident. Yes, they are blessed, but they work harder than everybody else. And I have another story. A friend of mine was Tom Brady's trainer for a while, and he got to go on vacation with Tom and his family. And they're on an island somewhere in the Pacific, beautiful supermodel wife walking around in a bikini. And they have the whole island to themselves. And Tom's like, hey, Gabe, come on out. I want to do something with you on the beach because they're running, doing some stuff. Where He's like, I need you to take these chairs and set them up like this. So Tom Brady in his bathing suit with a supermodel wife laying out on vacation, Mm -hmm. has his iPad and he's looking at defenses, making my buddy move chairs around to mimic defenses. And then he would sit there and then he would, fake like he was taking a snap, take his three, five step drop, look around and say, okay, hey, move that chair over there. Move that chair over there. Do it again and again and again. And he did this for a couple hours a day in paradise on vacation. Those people cannot turn it off. So I think it's important for people to understand the level that these people are at and what they're willing to do and understand what it takes to get there. It's not that They're just completely genetically gifted. They're obsessed with their craft and they're obsessed with winning and they're willing to sacrifice anything and everything in order to do so. I agree. The commitment and dedication and just the focus on all aspects of the game, whether it's physical, but what I'm hearing also is the strategy, right? And the mental part are equally important. Yes. And I I do want to touch base a little bit on the support system because I've heard you talking about it a number of times. And I also heard now you speaking about your daughters and how important it is to create that network or what I call the support system. Because mm-hmm. I think nobody can make it 
alone. You at least need really skilled coaches and hopefully the right coach because one coach might be skilled, but I think pairing of which coach fits somebody sometimes is an art or maybe you lack code whatever you want to write the pairing of the coach and then the fluence how an athlete can understand the directions or even be able to open up absolutely and really hear what the coach is saying and be coachable to share a story being teenage girls it can be so rough i've gone through it myself right focusing on the sport and having an outlet that is other than kind of the drama that can be happening (laughs) i think that was my savior back in those years because really I was very lucky I just had the sport to focus on and I never really had to worry about all the other crazy drama that could be going on with girls or in school and all of my energy was totally exhausted during the practices so there was another benefit I would say I never really was a teenager because I was so tired from running around on the court that I had no energy left to really have my full teenage years. Yeah, and I think the teenage years are tough for everybody. But what's so great about being an athlete is you have a built-in identity. There's so many people who are trying to figure out who they are. Mm. Are you a punk? Are you a metalhead? Are you a jock? Are you a nerd? <laughs> are you the outcast? You know, whatever it is that you are. And you see kids kind of weave and go in and out of these personalities and they kind of try these hats on and they see if they fit, they see if they like them, they see if other people like them as that person. And athletes are already, that's just who they are coming in. That's who they are already. And even though they're going to probably try some hats on as they kind of go through some things, they're putting that hat on on top of their athlete hat already. And so they have an established identity and it's just one of those things where like, well, I already know who I am. I'm this. And you can always fall back on that. And the whole, yeah, like my girls are exhausted at the end of the day and they don't have any time to care about or deal with any of the drama that comes with being a high school girl. And um, I'm, I'm extremely happy about that. <laughs> and um, going back to being an athlete and identity, because for me, I was a tennis player. And when that ended, what you mentioned, it's the finding who am I going to be now? Yeah. This whole persona is dead. What am I going to transition to? I think that was more of the critical path, finding myself. How did you navigate that after baseball, Division One? you played semi-pro after? And then at what point did you realize baseball is over and what am I going to do next? How did you get from there to the powerlifting world? That's always a tough transition for anyone and everyone to make, no matter when it happens. And um For me, you know, I was able to play for a long time and it kind of all hit me when I was playing for a team here in San Francisco and the team ended up folding and the coach and the manager of the team were like, hey, most of the guys are going to play on this team until we figure out what's going on for next season. And I was like, okay, it wasn't great baseball, but it was something and it kept me involved and kept my toes in the water. And um, I showed up to the field. And I usually would show up four to five hours early, get in there, you put your stuff away in the locker room, you do all this stuff, you get yourself ready, maybe you get a treatment done, you go out, you take some DP, and then you come back in, you know, you get stretched out, you watch some video, whatever it is that you do, then you go over your pregame stuff, and then you get dressed, and then you get ready to go. And by the time that the game actually started, you know, I just basically sit in my car and read because no one else was around. People are getting there five minutes before the game started, even five minutes late. 
dressing on their way from their car to the field. And um, I was just like, all right, this isn't what the level that I want to be playing baseball at anymore. And I had to just be okay with letting it go because I could have played rec league. And the final game that I had, I pitched five innings and I'm not a pitcher and I hit two home runs left-handed and I don't hit left-handed. So the level of baseball was very, very low. And I could have been the king of that rec league if I wanted to, but that didn't really matter to me. What I wanted to do was what I had been doing for a very long time. And that wasn't there anymore for me. So when I decided to hang up my spike, I was like, I got to find a way to keep myself busy. And I always keep myself competitive in something. And um, I would always be up late watching ESPN. And if anyone can remember again, maybe I'm dating myself, but World Strongest Man was always the after 10 o'clock on ESPN thing, because that's all that they had because they didn't have necessarily a ton of other filler. So I watched a lot of World Strongest Man and I thought like, hey man, that would be kind of cool. And um, I reached out to my college strength and conditioning coach who just so happened to be very lucky for me top 10 powerlifter in the world, the number one 308 squatter, all-time world record holder. His name is Paul Childress. And he was able to help guide me in the sport and set me up with a gym, set me up with people and help guide me through things. So I kind of knew that it would be cool to be strong or stronger. I didn't know exactly what that would mean. And I kind of tripped and fell into powerlifting and, you know, really fell in love with it, just doing the reading and um, more fell in love with the community aspect of things because that's what kind of I really missed the most about baseball. I didn't have that locker room. I didn't have that group of guys anymore. And what I had in the gym was a group of guys and girls who were working hard, who were grinding and kind of showed me how I could do somewhat of a normal life and still have something to work hard at and something to compete at. So uh, that's kind of how I landed in the power. Wow. What it really seems like you've been very good in focusing and finding what you enjoy doing and then putting all of your efforts in and the community and support system seems like is a big thing for you that then helps fuel the passion. So based on the story, what you mentioned, it really seems like when that went away from baseball, it seemed like you didn't have much in common because the team wasn't putting as much effort into it and wasn't trying to be much better in essence as you were it seemed like there was a trickle point to figure out what is the next thing that you can put your energy into. Absolutely. You know, I needed something. I had an outlet. <laughs> I'm not a golfer. I'm not a painter. I'm not anything else. I'm a physical being of some sort. And I enjoyed lifting throughout my baseball career. And it was somewhat limited because of obligations to sport and to seasons. So, you know, when this opportunity opened itself up, it was a natural fit, but yeah, it's always, um, it's always more enjoyable to do something with good people around you who are interesting and interested in what you're doing and interested in some of the same stuff. It makes it so much more fun. And, um, yeah, that's what I think more than anything that I was missing was that fun aspect of things and being able to have a place and have somewhat of a team, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, that's, from as long as I can remember, that's all that I've ever had around me. And, um, you know, I've been able to, for, for a long time, be able to put myself in those situations. So you're very lucky to have good people around me. And I think I was taught at a young age to um, 
if I didn't understand something, you know, I could read about it and I could always ask. Mm -hmm. So I had the audacity to call people who some people would like, now, why would you call that person? He's the number one lifter in the world. Or why would you call that guy? Why did I call Louis Simmons? It's like, because he put his phone number at the end of every article that he wrote. Mm -hmm. And he said, if you have questions, call. So I called and people have these, um, these roadblocks that they kind of put up where they're like, oh, I don't want to call him and sound dumb or whatever the case is. And I was just like, hey, man, I'm interested in this. And I was just on a phone call yesterday. Someone from the UK said, hey, man, can I pick your brain for a half an hour? I was just like, absolutely. And he was just like, he was astonished. He's like, I didn't even think that you would respond to my email. And I was like, hey, man, this is what you do. This is how you give back. You know, Paul, Dave Tate, Jim Wendler, Louis Simmons, all these people answered my phone call, answered my email. And if I can't do that for someone else who was in the same spot that I was when I was there, you know, I'm doing a disservice to everybody else in the whole profession and kind of just to the whole community and to the universe. You know, I'm always happy to try to help people as much as I can. Now, there are obviously limits. I was so blessed to have so much help. And I would never try to take that away from someone else just because, you know, because I was helped for free by a lot of people. And um, that's what I really like to do, because that's just going to help continue that on. You know, he was just like, I'm going to find your Venmo and pay you. I was like, just pass it on. Give this information to somebody else. Or maybe you help somebody else out or give them a free month at a gym, you know, something along those lines. So just very lucky to have been taught to ask questions, to be curious. and always kind of keep improving one way or the other i love that now going back to the weightlifting the interesting thing when i was listening to your podcast you've talked that baseball players or at the time when you were a baseball player you weren't actually lifting as much so how was your whole journey of learning then transitioning from baseball and what strength meant when you played baseball to really true powerlifting strength and your records here is you squatted 909 pounds, 601 in bench, and 820 deadlift. Mm -hmm. So how do you get from that yeah. to those amazing numbers? You know what? It is very strange because now you know I'm on the other side and I'm actually coaching a lot of baseball players myself in the weight room. So when I was growing up and while I was playing baseball, the thought processes were very archaic. Baseball is one of those, I mean, they didn't even integrate until like the 1920s, right? So it's a slow moving, giant old steamship. And one of the things that was incredibly slow was the whole player development, strength and conditioning side of things. It was thought that you didn't want to lift a lot of weight because you were going to be muscle bound and then you couldn't throw the ball, you couldn't hit the ball, you couldn't do all these other things. And then that mold was kind of broken in a really poor way with like the you know, the Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire thing where, where steroids, all mm -hmm. of it, you know, all of a sudden baseball players went from 180 pounds, to 230 pounds. And the average home run went from 380 feet to 450 feet. They really started to raise some eyebrows. Baseball finally caught up with the rest of the world as far as strength and conditioning is concerned. So when I was playing, it wasn't encouraged really to do so. And when I was in college, again, I was lucky enough to have someone who was very progressive and a wonderful strength and conditioning coach. And he helped me do as much as I can. But a baseball season in college is brutal. Mm -hmm. You know, you're there early fall until 
late summer and you have about a month off or a month or two off and you usually go play in a summer league. Right. So now you're playing upwards of 120 games in a year round thing, including the summer. So you're pretty much in season all the time. So it's hard to take a couple of months off and really focus on getting strong. So now with my good friends, people like Eric Cressy and a lot of his coaches that he has kind of sent into the baseball world, we're starting to understand that that's not necessarily the case. Strength is of the utmost importance for baseball players. Strength and just being able to endure 162 game season. So when I came out of baseball and started to actually lift a lot more, I was basically a very athletic blank slate. You know, I was 6'2 and about 180 pounds when I started powerlifting. And the first thing that I was told to do was to gain weight. And for the next about four years, I never missed a meal and never missed a training day. I slept eight to 10 hours a day. And I put on over a hundred pounds and my numbers automatically started to skyrocket. I went from kind of a skinny, long limbed kid to when I look back at it now, probably a little bit too fat of a power lifter, but my leverages changed. I didn't have a lot of years and miles underneath me at that point in the weight room. So I was very much a sponge and I was able to suck up a lot of training and make a lot of progress because I was so young in the sport. And then I think my first meet, I believe I squatted 500. I think I benched like 400 and I think I deadlifted 500 pounds. And um, from then on, I was hooked and all I was focused on is making sure that every meet that I could go to, you know, I was going to hit records and keep going and keep going. It's just a lot of hard work. It's a lot of recovery. And it's just being focused on what you want to do and having goals. And again, people sometimes think that it's ridiculous. But, you know, I think my goal when I was a kid is I wanted to be a major league baseball player. So when I started to power lift and I was asked, what were my goals? I said, I want to break the all-time records at 308 and super heavyweight. And I can remember my coach was like, what? And I was like, well, yeah, why wouldn't I want to do that? And it's just like, well, I guess you're right. He goes, you're nowhere close. I was like, that's okay. Like all I got is time and hard work and time is all I need. And that is, and you can accomplish a hell of a lot with that. Right. And I love what I'm hearing, even from baseball, like you're really good at setting goals and driving to achieve. That's what it seems like you start with big audacious goals and just work towards them to see what you can get done. Yeah. And it's, if you accomplish them, awesome. Very cliche, but you know, the reward is kind of the journey, you know what I mean? And getting to do all those things and looking back at it and realizing like, hey, there's not a lot of people who accomplished what I did. I didn't necessarily accomplish the goal that I wanted to, but I still did really, really good. Mm -hmm. And I made a lot of friends and I had a lot of fun and I met people who have influenced me in my life to this day. And without those people, I wouldn't be getting to talk to you and I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm going to do. So Am I a disappointment or am I a success? You know, I would rather think that I'm a success. And I think, you know, it's the whole, you know, shoot for the moon and for the stars or shoot for the stars, land on the moon or whatever the hell that thing is. It's, you should want to be the best at something. And if life gets in the way or you don't necessarily accomplish that, you're not a failure. You went all in and you did what you could. And um, 
you let the chips fall where they may. It, it is what it is. And my goal is to be the best dad and have incredibly successful kids. And, you know, they're going to find their own way in life. Are they going to be lawyer, doctor, professional softball, volleyball players? I don't know. My job is to make sure that they are set up for success and how they go about doing that is that's going to be on them. Yeah. I love everything you said. So resonates with me because I mean, for a long time, even after tennis, you can look at it both ways, right? And I've looked at it, I would say for a very long time, like I've failed. Right. And in essence, I have, I've never achieved the dreams I set for myself. But if I look at it and reframe, what is the skill? So going back to what we started the conversation, the mindset that I have learned and I've lived through, I think the experience for itself is invaluable because you can talk about it, but again, until you try it and experience it, the skill set that you learn from it. And I think I'm just even still now realizing how much, because some of the things I think I take a lot for granted. Sure. Like structure. I was yes. like, isn't everybody structured? But I think my <laughs> level of structure completely different. And what I consider is different than others. And these are just things like how to narrate about being an athlete as I grow through life and all the skills that I have learned from the sport. Yeah. Just the lessons you learn. You may set your high goals. But even if you don't achieve it, you're going to be better off for the journey and just trying than if you do nothing. Absolutely. And I think that's the biggest deal. You know, I think we really have a lot of people who who want to talk about a lot of stuff, but they don't try it. And you're just always so much better off for trying. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't do it or you don't accomplish everything, just getting out there and trying is a huge, huge deal. And it's a step that so many people don't take for whatever reason. And unfortunately, you know, it's a, it's a roadblock that is a quarter of an inch high. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is try. It's not that hard. And, you know, you'll find so much success as you go along. But yeah, Claire, I, you are so much better off for what you did. You didn't necessarily accomplish what you did. But yeah, there's a lot of people who don't have the structure, the goals, the mindset that you do and the abilities that you do. And it's all because you were an athlete. And uh, I'm so firmly in belief of that. And uh, I think, again, Everybody should be at a little bit an athlete for as long as their ability will uh, will take them. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Just trying any sport, whatever excites you, just try it. You will learn something from it. Absolutely. I do want to dive in, Jesse, into handling volume and what you mentioned, nutrition, recovery. I don't know where you want to start, but even just looking at me and it seems like you're a little bit the same. You were able to handle large volumes of work, mm -hmm. which I think it's a great genetical benefit from genetics perspective, right? I think I was quite lucky to have the body that I have. And I think to some degree, I probably overrated what it can do. I actually think if I can look back now and I was a bit smarter of how I train, I could have had a better career because I've taken it for granted, especially as you age. Yes. If you don't have the right people and recognizing, well, you're not 15 anymore. You know, your body when you're 15, 17, 18 is recovering very different than even at 22 as a woman. Yes. So that's where like in college, I started getting more and more injuries because I wasn't wise about practice. I still was putting in the volume, but it was a stupid volume to where <laughs> I wore my body. Down. Sure. So I, I can imagine as a powerlifter, how important that must be and even building in mobility and how you fine-tune your nutrition and recovery. Where would you want to start, Jesse? What, what makes sense for you? Well, I think that that's the biggest part that people 
trip over is trying to find which one of them to start with. Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate and cool part about all of it is that it's a giant ever-changing puzzle that it doesn't matter which one you start with, you just need to start. So if we're talking about nutrition, you need to figure out what's going on and what your demands are day to day and what your goals are with your body day to day. And also further on down the line, do you need to gain weight? Do you need to lose weight? Do you need to maintain? When during the day are you going to be more active? Do you need the most energy, et cetera? When you start looking at those things from a holistic viewpoint, you can really start to hone things in for yourself. Same thing with recovery. Do you work out in the morning? Do you work out in the evening? Do you have time during the middle of the day to do some recovery? Do you have five minutes at the end of the day to stretch before you go to bed? Mm -hmm. That's what I feel like I do as a coach and a dad very, very well. Just take a look back, look at things as a whole Mm -hmm. and find the really, really low hanging fruit, the easy stuff that we can plug into people's lives, these small little breadcrumbs that they can do over and over and over again, that become a good habit that therefore lead to greater things as they go. Mm -hmm. So if it's just getting up a little bit earlier so you can make yourself breakfast opposed to going to Starbucks and getting the the egg sandwich on the way to work or practice, Mm -hmm. can you be disciplined enough to wake up a half an hour early, throw some butter in a pan and crack three Mm -hmm. eggs and then flip them? (laughs) It's not that hard. Now, if you're like, dude, I just can't do it. Like, okay, cool. Well, where else can we do stuff? Well, I work in San Francisco and all I have is fast food and restaurants. I was like, okay, fine. Let's figure out a way. If your goal is to lose weight, Mm -hmm. if you go to McDonald's, hey, let's try to go to Subway instead. And then if you go to Subway and that's a step forward. And after a while, it's like, hey, okay, cool. Now, when you go to Subway, get a salad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? There's all these small little steps that can add to really, really big stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think people look at the whole recovery, nutrition, even training and volume game as this giant encyclopedia that they have to find their way through. When in reality, if they pick three easy things that they can do every day, do those for a month, look back at how much progress they've made, how better they feel, how much they're able to operate, how much more volume they are able to handle. And then you do two or three new things for that next month. And you kind of just go from there. So yes, it's a balance, but the biggest key to me is finding the easiest stuff. And I'll give you a really, really easy example. I have a lot of really small kids who are in high school and in middle school. And it's just like, okay, guys, you need to eat food. You need to eat more food. Oh, I eat so much, Coach Jesse, blah, 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 blah. Like, all right. I was like, here's what I need you to do. It's like, I need you to go home. I need you to take two pieces of bread. And I need you to put peanut butter on one, jelly on the other, put them together, cut it in half. And I need you, here's the hard part. I need you somehow throughout the day, walking from class to class, find a way to eat a half of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and then do it again another half after lunch. Do you think you can find, you know, literally 35 seconds to shove that thing in your face somewhere between the hours of 8.30 and noon? And they're like, Yeah. It's like, okay, cool. That's all we need to do. And then you say, okay, cool. I've accomplished that. You look back by the end of the month, you're like, dude, I'm up two pounds. Look at that. Good for you. Do you want to gain more weight? Yes. All right. You know what I mean? It's those sorts of things. They can be easy as that. Mm 
-hmm. People make it so hard. It's as easy as making yourself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the example and your detailed instructions Mm -hmm. that break it down to this little pieces of steps. They're like, well, if you just do one step at a time, you'll get there eventually. Just it's quite simple, right? So breaking the things down to simplify. It's a big power in that. And I do love what you mentioned, the creating consistency. So people often get overwhelmed with, oh, I need to do this and that, but how to break it down to the small little steps and almost make an agreement with yourself. Am I able to do these consistently? And by consistently, I want to say at least five, ideally seven times a week, yeah, right? Because yeah. if you don't break the habit, but give yourself a break if you can't do one day or you forgot, just make sure you get back on track and stick with it. Yes. See what the consistency creates over a few weeks of time and then fine tune. Um, I'm still curious about your personal favorites. Do you have some, Jesse, that really have created huge benefit for you either now as you're going through life in general for general public or powerlifters? As far as what? Easy things. What it sounded to me as hacks that you really yeah. focused on sticking with that created some of the biggest changes for you. I'm a huge believer in a 10-minute walk, Stan Efforting, and this popularized by Stan. But the more and more research you do into it, a 10-minute walk after a meal, and if you can just start with one and work your way up to three throughout the day, mm-hmm. does incredible things for your body, both aerobically and more importantly, insulin resistance-wise. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody can walk, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that hard. Yes. You don't need a treadmill. You don't need to necessarily live in California. You can walk everywhere. You don't have to go outside. You can just walk around your your living if you need to. So I think something like that is an invaluable thing. Starting there with a 10-minute walk is huge. Prioritizing protein is a very, very easy thing. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to gain weight, you need to eat more protein. If you're trying to lose weight, you need to eat more protein. Mm -hmm. So if you can start there, understanding what proteins that you like, what are easy to make, what are tasty to you, Mm -hmm. go and just hammer that stuff, hammer that stuff first. And all kind of the rest of the stuff will fall into play depending on whatever your goals are. And as I have aged and gone through kind of a lot of stuff, I think taking five to 10 minutes at the end of the day, being selfish enough to just, whether it's sit down and watch a show at the end of a night that you enjoy or relaxing, doing some breathing, doing anything at the end of the night, just to kind of give yourself some, some time to yourself. You know what I mean? That's why, you know, all these saunas and ice baths and depth, you know, sensory deprivation tanks, they're amazing, right? (laughs) They do wonderful things, but if you really boil it down, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. They're basically, you have to set an appointment with yourself Mm to do something for yourself. And if that has to be you making a massage, going get your haircut or doing whatever, doing something is an incredibly important thing mm-hmm. because it allows you to be the most effective you as you need to get up and do whatever it is or go throughout your day. If you're not, you have to take a little bit of time for yourself, whether you have a family of four kids, or you really need to take some time. You don't need to be introspective. You don't have to meditate, whatever. Just do something for yourself and make it a positive, good thing. And then also people overestimate the amount of time that they spend actually working. Mm -hmm. I think that 
everybody can find a way to take a little bit of time throughout the day or while we're on a phone call, you're doing some foam rolling or you're, you know what I mean? You're doing mm-hmm. a little bit of stretching or you're making sure you're drinking your water or whatever it is. There's all these small little things that again, can add up to so, so much. So just multitasking. I'm not going to ask you to drive foam roll and curl your hair while you put your makeup on going to work. <laughs> but there are a couple of things that you can do if you're interested. I'm a big believer and I love audiobooks. So anywhere that I'm going, that I'm mm-hmm. traveling to, that I'm driving to, I try to listen to an audiobook, and that's for me, and that's for my own development. And um, it might only be 20 minutes a day. And I'm very lucky, especially in the Bay Area, right? 20 minutes a day of uh, commute time is um, incredible blessing. Good commute. Yes, yes. Most people are looking at two hours, but you know, you can make those two hours productive. Whether it's a phone call to your mom, just checking in. Whether it's a phone call to that person that you haven't reached out to, or maybe that someone is struggling or self-improvement via an audiobook of some sort doesn't have to be again, you know, change your life or whatever. I mean, there's amazing books out there and there's always small ways to kind of improve yourself. And I think those are overlooked. And again, it's a very, very small roadblock that people continue to trip over. There's always some small stuff you can do to improve yourself. Yes. I love that. I do want to Drilling a little bit more down even into the nutrition, you've given sure. some examples and it's personally something I've uh, <laughs> experimented with yeah. and maybe even go into the differences of strength between what strength is as a value for men versus women. When I was 20, I would come to college in Texas. All the guys would give me compliments. I was like, wow, you're strong. Yes. And as a woman, I would look at it like, oh my God, like, am I not female? <laughs> like, you know, I actually didn't take it as a compliment for guys. It's a compliment for women. It's like, maybe I need to get slimmer. So I gone through all different types of throughout my life, diets and really CrossFit. Actually, I left right where, where I met you and I've seen Katie is the paleo type of eating, been testing keto. Now I've even gotten my continuous glucose monitor, which I love just monitoring data, right? And analyzing and seeing how my body responds to further fine tune the diet. And I think it's even more important as we age, because again, now in late 30s, what I eat has really big impact on my recovery and what I'm able to lift or how I'm working out and even quality of sleep. Then when I was 17, 18, that body is able to observe because it's recovering differently. So what is your best practices? Are you teaching your girls to eat with intention and knowing what good nutrition is? What is the best advice you would give out to the world for people to pay attention to? It's always going to be a struggle for females and, you know, because of all sorts of different things in their head. Mm -hmm. When I got custody of the girls when they were two years old, a single dad with two girls. And my goal was to make sure that I had, I surrounded them with wonderful, strong women. That was my goal. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry that you thought that that was an insult because that's such a compliment and that you were the exact person that I wanted around my girls. And CrossFit actually was able to provide me with that because of how many really, really strong females and, you know, ex-athletes were looking for something else to do. I think it's an incredible thing. I think it's such a compliment to be a strong woman. And you should be very proud of your past and your present and also your future being a strong woman. So I think that's incredibly important for females to hear that there is nothing more attractive than a female athlete, than a strong woman. 
And all the people online have never actually seen one because they may say, oh, you look manly, whatever, but you're going to go to a CrossFit gym and you're going to go ahead and you're going to see people like Tia Claire or something along those lines. Like, oh, you look too manly. You're going to see her out in the club in a dress. There's no way you're not going to be like, holy shit, she looks amazing because muscle is sexy. Muscle looks awesome on women. So, you know, I'm always hurt that for whatever reason that there's some idiots out there who say these sorts of things and make women think differently about it. There is nothing better looking than an athlete. And hopefully, you know, as we keep going and as people like Katie, people like Annie Thor's daughter are having kids and having children, that's the next generation where it's going to almost be expected that you're going to be a strong athletic woman. So hopefully that will become more of the norm than you maybe sticking out like a sore thumb. And that's kind of what people are looking at. We're like, oh, wow. It's an unfortunate thing, but you know, everyone kind of deals with it. As far as food goes, over the years, I've gone through a whole lot of different stuff. And the cool thing about this industry and the worst part about this industry is the same thing. And that is that everything works. But the key is, and you know, finding a good coach, finding a good diet, finding a good training program is finding out what works for you mm-hmm. and what needs to follow what and how long you can do certain things. Mm-hmm. So as far as diet, you know, and you can attest to this with your glucometer, if someone is coming to me with a, I want to be healthy, I want to lose a little bit of weight. My first thing is, is like, okay, cool. We're going to look for those small, low hanging fruit and see what we can do. In an ideal situation, I would try to have those people go as ketogenic as they can for anywhere between seven and 14 days. Mm-hmm. And um, this is something that I've been doing for a long time and something that I reread and I was just like, oh man, I'm actually right. In Rob Wolf's book, it's kind of called a reset. So what I want to do is just basically clear everybody out, drop all the carbs as much as we can for as long as we can. And then you start to kind of slowly add those back in with the whole goal and purpose of finding out not necessarily what foods you like, but what foods like you. Mm. But what I mean by that is, you know, again, you could really, really like pasta, but you eat it and then your, you know, glucose numbers jump and then you feel like shit and then your stomach's upset and all these other things. Well, guess what? Probably not great to eat that, but maybe white rice, you have a really flat line, you feel awesome, you feel energetic, you feel refreshed, you feel recovered. People need to understand the power that food can have. I just had a guy that I did this with for two weeks and I almost purposely give people rope. And he's just like, Hey man, I'm going over to my buddies. We're watching the preseason football game. And is it cool that, you know, I kind of let the diet go a little bit and I'm like, perfect, go for it. Eat whatever you want. Let's talk on Tuesday comes in on Tuesday. And it's like, I have been so sick since Sunday. And I was just like, you have no kidding. What was going on? And he was just like, man, I had pizza and I had chicken wings and I had all this other stuff. And I was like, oh, and then it kind of dawns on him that I wanted him to binge and have the food that he had been having prior just to teach him how awful it actually makes him feel with the understanding of, hey, man, if you keep feeding yourself poison, you'll adapt to it, you know, one way or the other. I think it was Rasputin took arsenic small amounts of arsenic until he was immune to arsenic because he was scared he was going to get poisoned. Your body is an amazing adaptative machine, but you need to understand the gasoline and the fuel you put in it. And if it it doesn't match 
what you want out of your energy levels or how many bathroom trips that you have throughout the day, then you need to change those. So I think understanding people's relationship to food, meaning you know how it makes you feel, why do you need to eat all these other things is an important journey for people to go on. Now, it's an incredibly hard journey sometimes for a lot of people, but just getting to the understanding of, hey, why don't you eat pasta? It's like, well, it makes me feel like crap. You're like, oh, it's hard to argue with that, right? It's just like, well, why don't you eat this? It's like, well, I feel terrible whenever I eat this. Mm -hmm. So if I want to feel good, I shouldn't eat that. And when you get to that level, your box of food really starts to kind of narrow it down. That menu really starts to narrow down to three, four or five things that you're going to look at that you know, okay, I can eat this and I can be cool tomorrow because I have X, Y, and Z to do tomorrow. Yes. But somehow, you know, if you're at the French Laundry and it's game on, do you go for it? Good for you. Have at it. But with the understanding that you might suffer for the next 20 to 48 hours. I think that's an important thing for people to give themselves an education on whether it's keto, carnivore, low carb, high carb, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you got to figure out what you operate best on. And what I do, what you do, may not be what someone else needs to do in order to progress and feel good. And they need to understand that's okay. And that there is leeway in everything that we do. And you kind of got to find your own path there in the middle. And then when you find it, try not to stray off of it because it's really not going to change that much as you go on. Yeah. And I've personally gone through that journey. Like It's funny, we you mentioned what do you have in the fridge. I think we end up with about 10 to 12 ingredients. And <laughs> <laughs> at that point, that's all we buy. It simplifies shopping because you just buy the same thing over and over. It is. We have a few different things you can experiment is adding different spices. And sometimes you do it on the barbecue. Sometimes you pan fry it. Sometimes you bake it. Right. Yep. That's kind of the difference. Yeah. It does simplify even just thinking, well, what are we going to have for dinner? Yes. And you pretty much <laughs> know roughly <laughs> you have about probably 20, 30% chance you're going to guess right because there's about, you know, the four things you can have that are in the fridge. Yeah. So choose one of those. Yeah. And I mean, to kind of build on the whole strong woman thing and kind of that next generation, I'm in a really cool place to be able to help my girls understand the impact that food and recovery have on their bodies as just human beings, but also as athletes. And um, through the process of experimentation, I've become a pretty decent cook and the girls have become great bakers and they understand what makes them feel good, what doesn't. And um, it's always really interesting because they'll go and they'll hang out with their friends or they'll go to dinner with people. You know, I can still remember the phone call that I got the girls went and hung out with someone and they took them to cheesecake factory. And the dad, I think the next time that I saw him was like, man, your kids can really eat. And I was just like, Oh shit. Yeah. I should have told you this. They were eight years old. And Casey ordered the ribeye medium rare. And Sophia ordered the adult sized salmon and they crushed every bit of it. But, you know, this guy thought he was going to get away with feeding his daughter and my daughter's chicken tenders and fries. And my girls went and took him for, you know, $45 each at the cheesecake factory. (laughs) (laughs) So ever since they've been young, this is just how we eat. This is just what we do. 
And, you know, as they've kind of gotten older, they've been like, why don't other people eat like this? Or why, when I go over there, did we have cereal for breakfast? It's like, well, that's just their choice. They don't necessarily understand what they need to fuel their body or they don't really care. You know, we're a different family. This is just what we do. And you'll end up being better off for it. Mm. I had a client who's like six foot four and 320 pounds. He wants to lose some weight. So I was just like, what are you eating for breakfast? He's like, I eat three eggs and, you know, like a piece of toast or something. And then he goes on and on. And I'm like, okay, man. I was like, hey, this is going to sound weird, but you just need to eat more food. You're not eating enough food throughout the day. And he's just like, that just doesn't make any sense, Jesse. And I was like, listen, you don't even eat the amount of food that my daughters eat. And they are 14 years old and they don't weigh 150 pounds. They're crushing five eggs in the morning with cheese and a piece of toast. They have two sandwiches in the, at school with snacks all over the place. And they come home and they crush 10 ounces of meat with two cups of rice and some vegetables. And he was floored. He was just like, oh my God. I was like, yeah, that's a 14 year old girl. You're a grown six foot four, 300 pound man. You can't eat the same way that these kids do. Now I realize that my girls are different because this is just what they've eaten for their whole lives. But they understand. Sophia now understands like if she has too much sugar, she feels terrible. And we always have to remind her because she has a sweet tooth. It's just like, hey, don't go crazy when you go to this friend's house and they have candy everywhere and all this other stuff. You know, enjoy it, but don't overdo it. And I think that's a really it's a fabulous lesson for kids to learn because it's like, Hey, you know, you want to touch the stove. Okay. But learn from it. You know what I mean? Learn from it and then move on. And, you know, hopefully kids and people just don't want to feel like shit. And if you teach them that eating like shit makes them feel like shit, hopefully eventually they'll end up kind of learning that lesson. Yeah. I just love what you've been doing and setting the right foundation from early on. I think if we learned that more or nutrition and good nutrition was part of our education. I wonder how would our society look in general? Yes. Great job on doing that. And I'm curious, does Sophia listen? Because it's funny, I can relate to her sometimes. Since I have such a clean <laughs> diet, even when we go to a restaurant now, I really can't eat much because whether it's the oil or whatever they use, we went even like a month ago to the Almanac Brewery, Alameda. Uh-huh. And they just had this fantastic looking burger and I love great burgers. So yes. I was like, oh, beer and burger. Why not? Sounds like an awesome Saturday. Right? <laughs> yes. And I ate the whole thing. It was a huge burger, but it paired perfectly with the beer. And I was sick for about two hours after. <laughs> it was still so worth it. Right. But and every now and then you got to do it. But I always know, you know, don't eat too much of this. <laughs> you know, you don't eat it regularly. It's going to make you feel sick. Yep. No. <laughs> and then I suffer for about two hours after as a reminder. So I'm curious if Sophia is smarter or if she, she has the same thing that I do. No, she has the exact same thing that you do. And I fully expect her to have the same experiences that you do for the rest of your life as well. She really loves food since she was a very small kid. We take them to a restaurant and they want to try new things and do all this stuff. And I love them wanting to experiment and see and taste and understand flavors. I think it's really, really cool. I think it really broadens the horizon and gives them different ideas and makes them a little bit more worldly. So I'm always willing to spend a little bit extra on that piece of octopus that I know that they're not going to like, but they want to try it regardless. 
but yeah, Sophia will continue to do that probably for the rest of her life. I have no doubt that she's going to be culinary, very um, curious, and uh, also fall into the trap of, oh my God, this tiramisu is amazing. And then, you know, at the end of the night go, oh my God, I'm so sick. And it's the price she's going to pay for her curiosity. But the curiosity, as long as it doesn't overtake her, I think that it'll be a good thing for her. And then same thing for you. You fucking should have had that burger and that beer. Good for you. You deserved it. I'm not saying you deserve to be sick, but hopefully it was worth it. Yeah, it actually was delicious. It was fantastic flavor. It went well with my sour beer and they had this blueberry jam on it with blue cheese. It was a fantastic pairing. So yeah, speaking of tiramisu i made one couple weeks ago and actually when i made it at home surprisingly my glucose didn't go up i put very little sugar so maybe next time sophia and, and i have to share recipes <laughs> I, i've seen the fantastic cupcakes that's how i actually connected yes. to you and i couldn't believe your girls are so grown because somehow i still have them in my head as this little four or five year old running around the gym something about kids oh yeah <laughs> no me too absolutely and they would love that and we're putting on a powerlifting meet in December and they are literally planning a menu of baked goods for everybody. So I mean, they really like to do that. And I think it's really cool. You kind of built on it as far as like the nutrition side of things. Mm-hmm. It's been really cool. One of the positive things that have come out of the COVID aspect of things has been us cooking so much at home. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you take a little bit of care and you want to learn how to cook and you know, you experiment and you try and you read and you do some stuff. It's incredible what you're able to produce at home for a fraction of the price. Yes. And you, again, you could probably replicate that burger and you probably wouldn't have the gastrointestinal issues because maybe you don't use whatever oil they used on the grill in order to grill it. So yeah. we've been able to do a lot of that stuff. And I always think, man, this is what we should be teaching in school is mm-hmm. how to eat, how to cook. How do you get insurance when you're, you know what I mean? When you're an adult, how do you pay bills? I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. I went to a college prep and I had no idea what a credit card was. Now, you know, I'm not saying that my parents failed me. I had a whole different thing. And by the time I got to it, it was just like, oh, wait, this isn't free money. Like, no, you got to pay that back, man. Oh, crap. So I think there's a lot of just basic life skills. And one of the biggest one is cooking. Mm -hmm. People always balk at, um, Katie just put up a post, I think last week, you know, we're spending close to $600 a week at Costco for our groceries. But when we break it down Mm -hmm. for a family of now five, but I mean, four people, that's where it's most, we make all of our meals at home and we're making really good meals. Mm -hmm. If we say four a day for everyone, it comes down to like 10 or $12 a meal. You can't go anywhere and get the level of cooking, the level of nutrition anywhere. And I mean, if we would have went out to sushi, we're going to spend $300. And that's without anything else. So I think uh, that's such a skill. And I think maybe I would add that to kind of a hack that maybe really, really everyone should learn. And that can make someone's life so much better on the nutrition and on the recovery side is, is learn how to cook for yourself. You know, Learn what kind of foods that you really enjoy and that don't negatively affect you. And then learn how to cook them at home. And um, you'll save so much money, you'll feel so much better. And you know, your recovery will be better, nutrition will be better, and everything else in life will be better too. Yes, I agree. And totally conquer. I think majority of our 
money that we spend is actually on good quality food. And that's yeah. being proactive, right? You don't have to pay it in bills later. You're actually being yes. proactive and investing it in the right place. Jesse, I know we're coming on time here. I can talk about nutrition for hours since like you can too. <laughs> yes. but it wouldn't be a podcast talking to you talking to strength, about mm. strength. So I do want to touch base on it. And I mean, even the story I shared earlier in as I age, I think strength is such an underrated thing, even for any athletes. And you talked about baseball. I have the same experience with tennis. I think tennis players, even when I was a tennis player, don't live nearly as much as they should. I think strength gives your body the right movement, ability to move. I think one of the reasons I really like CrossFit is the functional fitness and doing the squats the right way. And I think with that, building the strength, especially as I age now, I see strength is fundamental, same as nutrition, fundamentally important for good aging as we grow through life. So what tips would you give to people about strength, how to start about it? Any of your best tips for building strength exercises or specific workout routines that you may have? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I always try to kind of come back to and pitch it to people like this. Look, no one ever in the history of history has said, has lost a game, a match or anything and said, you know what? If I was weaker, I think I would have won. <laughs> if only, if it. only, <laughs> if only I was weaker, I could have beat this person. That is never in the history of history ever been said. And never in the history of the universe going forward will ever be said because strength is paramount to everything else. And if people are incredibly honest, and I'm in a very lucky position because I get to know a lot of people personally behind the scenes, but one of my best friends in the world, Kelly Sturette, mm. he's going to fall on that mobility sword all the time, right? If you improve your mobility, everything gets better. Mm -hmm. But one day I went to him and I said, hey, Kelly, it's like, you do realize that in order to be mobile, you first need to be strong in order to get into these positions and do these things. If you don't have the musculature mm. built, mobility doesn't matter. And he's just like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so strength buffers everything. Strength is the bottom of the pyramid. And the stronger you are, the wider that bottom is and the higher the pinnacle can be. So again, it's one of those things where you can make this as complicated as we would like, or we can make it as easy as you would like. So for anyone who's out there who's wanting to just gain strength, etc., Start small. You don't have to overcomplicate things and do anything else, but just try putting more weight on the bar or weight on the machine that you're doing. Lower your reps a little bit, up your weight, and just see how things go. Understand that it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be hard, but that's the point. I've always been of the opinion that you know anyone who really wants to gain strength should move to an island that I'm going to buy one day, and I'm going to call it Five by Five Island. And all that they're going to do is they're going to go there and they're going to lift. Their reps that are prescribed and sets that are prescribed are five sets of five reps. Go in there and do whatever you think. And usually the number comes out to about an eight out of 10. Whatever that number is, you're going to do five sets of five with that number. You're going to do it with the squat. You're going to do it with the deadlift. You're going to do it with the bench press. You're going to do it with pull-ups. You're going to do it with lat pull-downs. You're going to do it with overhead press. Five sets of five. Pick. And we'll even make it simpler. Five sets of five, five exercises, five times a day. And you'll be so strong after a year. 
that you can complicate anything that you want to do and go and accomplish pretty much whatever you can do because that base will be so wide and so strong that you'll be able to leap off and go ahead and be better at whatever you want to do after that point. Well, I love that concept and thinking. Any <laughs> of your top exercises, what do you pick? If you really want to focus on building strength, what are your most favorite ones, Jesse, that you think really helps the overall muscle and body movement? You're always going to come back to the big compound movements. So some sort of a squat, mm -hmm. some sort of a, a press, whether that's bench press or overhead press, some sort of a deadlift, whether mm -hmm. that's conventional sumo, uh, trap bar. Mm -hmm. I think that some sort of a pull-up or a chin-up, whether you can do one on a bar or need some sort of a lap pull-down or a machine, I think that's the utmost importance. And I think just general mm -hmm. walking. And then also, if you feel like you are an athlete or if you want to be an athlete or if you just want to be a better athlete, you need to start sprinting. And by sprinting, I don't necessarily mean going out there and running as fast as you can. You can totally do mm -hmm. that. You can accomplish this on a bike, on a rower, anything along those lines where you're basically just trying to do something really, really fast and hard for a short amount of time between, you know, 10 and 30 seconds, you know, repeated bouts of about 10 times through. If you're able to accomplish doing those movements a couple times throughout the week, you will be able to accomplish a hell of a lot. Yeah, I love that. Speaking of that, I, I remember I saw Katie posted a video of her doing the dog sled. So those are oh yeah fantastic yep. for the sprints. I hate sprinting actually personally. That's one of the things that's like ugh, not my favorite. <laughs> yeah, those are gnarly and definitely early add. I'm a huge believer in the sled and also the prowler. You know, those are great add-on things. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, you don't have to. You don't have to be fancy about it. That's the coolest thing about strength. Some of the strongest people that I know are some of the most blue collar, ordinary people out there. And I think it really matches up to what you can accomplish with strength is like, you don't have to be super fancy about it. You just got to go in there, mm -hmm. load the bar up and um, lift it in good form. Do it repeatedly over and over and over again. And really, really good things are going to happen over time. Yeah. And I mean, speaking all the exercises you've listed here, it seems like barbell is kind of the default and really some weights, yep. right? Yep. Is there any other exercise equipment that's your favorite you would recommend that really moves the needle? I think like we were talking about a sled that you're going to drag and then a prowler that you would push. Mm -hmm. Again, those are things that are not going to take up a huge footprint, whether it's at your gym or at your house. All you need is a street or some sort of a patch of grass and you can do those. I'm a huge fan of dumbbells and kettlebell work. I think that you can get a ton of stuff done with that stuff mm -hmm. during the, the shutdown. You know, a lot of people are going and trying to do home gyms yeah. and I would always like, Hey man, just get a barbell mm -hmm. and some dumbbells and you're going to be able to do a hell of a lot and accomplish 80, if not 90% of everything that you could do with any sort of a fancy machine. But if you have the room, you have the money, I think things like some sort of a lat pull down or a row that you can kind of overload yourself. It's a huge thing for you. Mm -hmm. A reverse hyper, a glute ham raise are always solid investments for you. And something like a kettlebell, you know, something along those lines, you can start to add in as well. But, you know, again, we can complicate this stuff, but, you know, get really good at something first before you need to complicate it. You know what I mean? And just uh, start with the basics and we'll move from there. Yeah. Do you want to go a little bit to complication? I know we have just a few minutes here, but I was researching 
tsunami bar. Actually, I was looking at the rogue stuff and I know I've heard you talking about the bamboo bar. What is your opinion? Personally, have you tried it? Oh, yeah. I've, I was one of the people who had one of the original bamboo bars. Mm. It's actually just a, st a stick of bamboo. It's amazing. But again, it's one of those things where it's really cool to have and they work really, really well. But for me, when I look at pieces of equipment and things, I'm looking on a grand scale where yes. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, I have 40, 50 lifters in here. I have 30, 40 athletes in here per day. What is going to most benefit those people? Mm -hmm. And if I buy anything for all of them, it's going to be, I need to buy at least three, if not five. So how much better are we going to get if we have five bamboo bars? Yeah. Probably not that much better <laughs> compared to me investing in getting some new just barbells or some dumbbells, right? Mm -hmm. Bamboo bars are great, especially if someone has any sort of issue of stabilization in any of the lifts, uh, squat bench or deadlift. Mm -hmm. They're fun. People enjoy doing them. I think stabilization, I think walking with them overhead, benching with them are incredible for upper body stabilization and also kind of just some cross body core work as well. I think you can be very creative with them. But again, in order to have a bamboo bar, you know, you need to have some bands and then also some kettlebells. So this isn't an all-in-one thing. And you need to understand what it's going to do to you. you know, you're not going to be able to put 17 kettlebells and really make it shake and go crazy. The first time that we got ours, a lifter of mine took it out for a bench press. And basically, it was shaking so much that it shot forward and almost, um, almost hit him in the knees. Wow. So, you know... You have to be very gradual with adding it in and being smart where you add it in. You know, I'm very lucky to have a gym and I have all the cool toys and all the stuff and bamboo bar is definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. But I would, I always suggest people like, Hey, if you're thinking about buying something, try to go somewhere and say, Hey, can I come in and use your bamboo bar, giant camera bar, safety squat bar, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And you go in there and if you use it and you're like, I'm going to use this and this is fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. Then go for it. Test it out a little bit. Spend, you know, the 20 or $30 it is for a day pass to go use something. And if you want to come and use mine, you can use it for free. Come in, use it and make an informed decision before, you know, you throw $300 away. Yeah, that's a great advice. Actually, I never thought about it. I don't know why. Yeah, be because you know what's going to happen? You're going to go buy your bamboo bar and then it's going to sit in the corner and then you're going to put it up on Craigslist and I'm going to buy it for me for $100 later on. So yeah. you might as well come and use mine and um, you know, get <laughs> make an informed decision and make sure that you like it first and then you can kind of go from there. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I did want to say I just recently invested getting our new reverse hyper and yeah, that's been Fantastic, awesome. especially for my hamstrings and back pain. I think that's just really yes. It's a great machine. So it is. It's huge. Those are invaluable, but again, those are kind of luxury items when we really look down to it. But more that people are sitting down and you know at work and driving, the more important something like a reverse hyper really ends up being. Yeah, Jesse, thank you so much. I realize we're kind of right on time here. I don't want to ruin the rest of your schedule. Anything else you would want to close with? advice you've given tons already but key things people should be looking at through the second half of 2021 or 2020 if we go through the pandemic any top things we should be doing more of or less of well i just want to say thank you for reaching out to me and kind of reconnecting this has been awesome just to have this conversation and to kind of reconnect it's my pleasure to do this stuff i think that um the state of the world is very strange right now and um 
I think some of the best stuff that you can do for yourself is, is just be a good person and just reach out to a lot of people and understand that a lot of people are struggling with a lot of different stuff. And if you are willing to have a conversation with someone or just willing to reach out to someone who maybe looks like online, you know, they're, they're, they're posting some weird stuff or they're posting, you know, that they are struggling or something, you know, reaching out to someone, especially if they're a friend can be an amazing thing. You know, you can be that change. You can be that one person, that one email that really changes the trajectory of someone's life. I think the mental health in the world right now is, is an incredibly important thing. And it's a very fragile, delicate balance we're dealing with. And I think the more people are good human beings and are willing to reach out and talk to each other and realize that we're much closer to agreement than we are disagreement on a majority of things, I think that we can, we can get better as a whole. And um, that can help you become a much better individual. And, um, you know, there are people out there who are struggling, you know, whether it's monetary, uh, physically, mentally. And um, a lot of times all that they need is a little bit of hope and a little bit of help. And again, it's one of those things that it's not going to cost you anything. And it's not really that hard to reach out to someone to just say that I love you, think it of you, something along those things. Those are going to pay dividends that you'll never, ever understand. And if we can do a little bit of that, you know, that would be my hope for everybody that not only that they can go out there and help somebody that they also kind of receive that help and that we can, you know, come together opposed to keep trying to separate. Yeah. Thank you. I love that message. And that really speaks come back to your support system. And if we just focus on supporting the best we can, the people we care about or the first and second opportunity that we see out there, I think the better the world can become just kind of one person at a time. Absolutely. I'm 100% agree with you. And you know, this is, this has been awesome. And hopefully someone will hear exactly what they need to hear with this. And <laughs> yeah. We'll have accomplished what we wanted to as well. Yes, I think you've shared wealth of information. And if anyone just wants to improve one 2% consistently every day, you've given so many great tips from mindset to growing strength to nutrition. So Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, Jesse. And uh, I hope you're doing well. It's been amazing to contact you. And anybody that needs anything from me, Jesse Burdick at gmail.com, Jesse Burdick on, on, on all socials. I'd love to hear from anybody. Fantastic. Thank you. I'll add all the social media and, and links to the podcast as well. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Thank you. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.